GM, and welcome back to the NFT Now podcast live from the Gateway. This special edition recorded at our five-day Web3 Arts and Culture Festival during Art Basel, Miami. What a labor of love. We took over two city blocks and 12 buildings, brought the community together, tons of art installations, leading speakers, you name it. But if you missed out, we got you covered. We have a ton of incredible conversations to roll out from the week and very excited for this week's guest, a man who has had a profound impact on the Web3 space as we know it, Joseph Lubin founder and CEO of Consensus and the co-founder of Ethereum. Yes, you heard that right. Uh, Joe joins us for an incredibly candid panel uh, where he doesn't shy away from the, the timely topics of the day. He talks FTX, SBF, regulation, and what's to come from Ethereum in the post-merge era. Before we jump in, just want to encourage you to sign up for our newsletter, nftnow.com. We distill all of the things that are happening in this space into actionable insights every week straight to your inbox. So without any further ado, our honor to host Joe Lubin, founder of Ethereum. We have uh, an incredible guest uh, today, Joe Lubin, um, founder, CEO of Consensus and the co-founder of Ethereum. We're fortunate enough to have Joe speak at the, uh, the inaugural the, uh, edition of the Gateway last year at Miami Basel. And so um, really excited for our conversation today. Me too. Well, let's jump into it because there's no shortage of things to talk about. Why don't we start at the very top? What makes blockchain valuable? Um, blockchain is valuable, uh, essentially, to, to make a small point um, that it's going to... Uh, drive a paradigm shift that changes everything on planet Earth. Uh, and it's blockchain, it's decentralized protocols. Uh, the core value proposition of blockchain uh, is trust. And we, we spent years, some of the early years in the ecosystem, trying to come up with how to name that sort of trust. Uh, we had trustless, trust-minimized, trustful, trustworthy, um, you don't need to trust uh, anybody, um, but, but really it's a new invention. It, it's decentralized trust, and you can only get that from um, a new kind of database. So uh, for millennia, uh, the world has operated uh, based on centralized trust, uh, centralized systems where there's an authority, the authority imbues uh, legitimacy, trust uh, in a whole bunch of intermediaries uh, in an economy, in society. They all have their own databases. Um, and they write down in the databases who owns what, who has what privileges, uh, and that's a great system. Uh, Top-down command and control has enabled us to build astonishing things, and, and thank you for making use of these astonishing things for, for this event. Um, but uh, all these astonishing things don't serve everybody well. Uh, they don't, they're not accessible by everybody, and, and I think we can do better. Um, in 2008, 2009, Satoshi invented a new kind of database. Uh, it's an open, decentralized database, um, and it enables everybody to inspect what happened and when uh, with respect to any transactions built uh, in systems on top of that database. And so um, 
that will drive a paradigm shift where initially the trust vector was top down from the authorities. Now the trust vector has been turned bottom up from the grassroots. Um, we're seeing the democratization of trust um, and uh, this database uh, is enabling the democratization of finance, global financing in the form of decentralized FI. Um, and uh, one of the beauties of these systems is that if the database is massively decentralized enough, uh, then unlike all those databases that the trusted third party intermediaries maintain, uh, you um, can be certain uh, that it is enormously economically expensive to overturn the history of these databases. And, and centralized systems throughout history are rife with the intermediaries cheating by, by changing ledger entries uh, in those databases. And so uh, what we're seeing is a new trust foundation enabling a new global decentralized finance system, which has been democratized. And we're seeing the first incursion, the first crossing of the chasm of this technology into mainstream culture. Um, and that's what we're all doing here. So the first industry affected is con creatives, basically content creators, content owners, the entertainment industry. By that, I, I also mean athletes uh, who are kind of content creators uh, themselves. And, and so um, there's a paradigm shift going on, uh, tip of the spear, uh, as it usually is, are the artists uh, who, are, who can uh, either reflect to us who we are or show us a path forward. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I love that explanation. You know, a lot has changed in the year since we were last at the Gateway. Um, there's obviously uh, no shortage of negativity swirling around uh, the crypto and Web3 space uh, with recent events. How do you feel the collapse of FTX will impact the crypto space and what lessons can we learn from it? Um, so mixed feelings, I guess. Um, a lot of people have been harmed badly. Um, and I think we should look at it in context. Um, a lot of people have been harmed uh, for millennia uh, by bad centralized systems. If you can hide information, you can cheat in, in so many different ways. And so um, the FTX debacle um, wasn't a point event. Uh, it stems back all the way to Terra Luna and other kinds of collapses that we've seen. Some of those companies weren't corrupt, uh, but had back bad practices. Those bad practices should have been regulated. They should have been exposed. Some, some other companies were kind of corrupt in, in, in including FTX in, in different ways. Um, and so uh, I think we should also be grateful. I'm, I'm grateful that it is going to enable us to um, drive a narrative that, that really lays out in stark terms um, the value of decentralization versus how easy it is for centralized systems uh, that manage other people's money, whether they're legally allowed to or not. Um, how, how badly they can behave or how badly they can fail. Uh, so it, it's up to us. Uh, we're working at consensus to, to craft narratives, to, to speak to regulators about uh, what we can learn from this system. Uh, so Sam Bankman-Fried uh, was a, an effective altruist, and I think we owe an enormous debt of gratitude to him for sacrificing himself. <laughs> um, 
creating the most egregious abuse in history, not just blockchain history, but, but financial history, and enabling us to point to all of the things that you can do badly, uh, whether he was evil or not. Um, but um, CFI, um, bad. Uh, so not bad. CFI is money, crypto. Um, there are good CFI projects. It, it's valuable to onboard the early majority mainstream people to understand and utilize and, and benefit from this technology. But the core of what we're doing and have been doing for many years is decentralization. It's DeFi. Uh, DeFi constructs can be used by regulators and CFI organizations to to track assets, to uh, disclose both assets, uh, reserves, and liabilities, where liabilities are much more difficult. Uh, we're going to need to put our heads together and figure out a protocol where people, where organizations can disclose liabilities without reducing their competitive advantage. You don't want your trader adversary to, to know what you're holding, but uh, I, I think we can get there. There's a pall uh, over the ecosystem right now. I think in the new year, we, we turn that into the opportunity to help regulators and, and other uh, global leaders to understand how good all this is and how they should have an adversarial relationship with CFI, but DeFi or, or the people in our our ecosystem who are proponents of, of decentralization, we're kind of on the same team as the regulators. We're, we're trying to empower uh, consumers and institutions, and we're trying, trying to protect them. Absolutely. In your eyes, what does sensible regulation for this space look like? I would love to see us in our ecosystem make use of the technology to do things that self-regulate, whether it's single companies doing it or whether it's a groups of companies uh, doing that, potentially putting together a protocol to disclose liabilities in a, a safe and prudent way. Uh, CFI organizations absolutely need to be regulated. They are in the business of bringing money into the ecosystem, whether it's institutional money or retail money, uh, and there will always be the opportunity to screw up unintentionally or in, or intentionally, uh, and regulators need to be watching. But importantly, technology should not be regulated. Uses of, of technology uh, can and often should be regulated, but innovation shouldn't be slowed or stymied, uh, and you should not be looking to censor or sanction or otherwise restrict uh, innovation when it comes to building software, publishing software, etc. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, in recent weeks, there was a lot of conversation around uh, MetaMask and Infura and the privacy policy with data collection. I know that you uh, made a thread on this subject, but just wanted to give you a chance to uh, clear it up for us and, uh, and address it. Sure, I, I can answer that briefly. And I'm sure my colleagues are in, in our PR group are, are stressing uh, about that question. Uh, but, but we actually have, uh, have some things that we're really proud to say uh, next week. Uh, the first thing uh, is that there was a lot of misunderstanding. Um, so there's misunderstanding because we issued a communication because we were at the darkest moment in, in our ecosystem. We were at, at peak FUD, peak paranoia, uh, the depths. Um, so I, I, I've 
informally um, called, what was it, last Tuesday? Um, um, basically the, the nadir of, of, uh, of our ecosystem, called call that the low. I, I think, uh, I, I don't know that we're up only from here, but, but uh, I, I feel like most of the major shoes, based on my understanding of, of who was exposed and, and uh, um, who had vulnerabilities, I, I don't think we're going to see any major downturns. And I think from here it's about uh, um, settling amongst ourselves and, and, and helping regulators um, put in a, a floor and a foundation for the ecosystem. Um, we have never monetized uh, personal information uh, directly. We, we never commercialized that. Um, any information that we take in, uh, we use to, to serve the user better. Um, there's information that we need um, it, for transactions, for processing transactions. Um, and we never store information. Um, Infura never stores information for... Uh, the simple things that we do, like like reading data and, and sending it back to a wallet. Um, but when we're processing transactions, we need to make sure uh, that those things don't fall to the ground. We need to make sure that there are, if there are reorgs that, that we're tracking those things. Uh, so it's all about uh, building a better product and, and serving the user better. Uh, and we do. Uh, so MetaMask um, serves more users, uh, more better <laughs> than, than any other systems. Um, the, uh, the percentage of transactions that, that we um, uh, achieve completion on um, is much higher than, than any other system. So when things are going well, uh, we might drop one or so or, or less than that percent of transactions to the ground just because blockchain is complicated. Um, when the blockchain is really challenged, we can drop up to three or four percent. Most other systems, even even going directly to the protocol, they're dropping 15 or 20 percent. So, so MetaMask is great because it's, it's best execution. And no, we do not uh, log all the addresses and uh, immediately. We, we just... Uh, we only uh, log information related to uh, a transaction. And, and we actually have engineers working right now to figure out uh, how we can shrink the window uh, and where, where we log that information. So Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, you know, something that's really stuck with me from last year's Gateway, I remember speaking to you afterwards, and, and you said that it was one of the most significant incursions into the legacy world that you'd seen. Um, as, as someone who, we have, we have a shared uh, desire to see this technology go mainstream. That's part of our mission at NFT Now, is to bring this from niche to mainstream. I'm curious, um, what does, how do you visualize mainstream adoption? Like, what does that look like for you, and how do you feel NFTs are uniquely situated to help bring uh, this technology into the mainstream? Yeah, so... Uh, NFTs are are a profound construct, a profound construct in computer science. So, uh, in the olden days, when you're writing software, uh, sometimes you would want a software object to have a unique identifier. Uh, so we called them globally unique identifiers or, or GUIDs. Um, but that it was only globally unique uh, amongst the little piece of software that, that you were writing. Now we have this construct. Um, non-fungible tokens, which are globally unique um, in, on the planet, uh, perhaps in the solar system, uh, perhaps further. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, and um, 
essentially this invention of decentralized trust has enabled us to, to do something called um, decentralized or scarcity or, or digital scarcity. Um, and that um, is not just going to apply to wrapping a piece of art or a piece of music, um, but it's also going to uh, enable uh, intelligent agents um, to be able to interact with financial instru instruments to, to pay um, other agents or people or organizations to take in money. A globally unique ID like a, an NFT uh, can represent uh, a DAO, uh, perhaps. And, and so um, we're going to see many businesses uh, being built uh, essentially into what we currently consider NFTs, but there'll, there'll be uh, generalizations of NFTs. And uh, what, what this early phase of, of NFT uh, utilization and adoption is doing is it is um, sort of, we were talking um, in the green room that, uh, that this period in our ecosystem, um, people keep trying to map it back to the, the dot-com era. Um, and we used to say, hey, we're in 1994, hey, we're in 1997, things haven't really hit yet. Um, but we've, we've surged pretty quickly. We've seen a lot of irrational exuberances and, and, uh, and corrections. We saw a massive irrational exuberance recently, followed by a geopolitical event or set of events, followed by a massive e global economic collapse. And that feels very much like 2001. What happened after 2001 uh, was that uh, 2000, 2001, uh, dot-com boom and bust. Um, what happened was all these great projects um, that drove so much irrational exuberance, so much excitement, so much speculation, uh, there's a lot of learning there, a lot of learning based on failure, but a lot of you know, excitement and, and mapping out uh, potential future. And we've gone through a few uh, phases of that. We are now in this uh, creative destruction phase where, where all the pieces get recombined. A lot of people uh, with expertise from a few years uh, are, are now um, figuring out right things to do. And so we're in this phase where we're not dreaming about the future and telling people how great the future is going to be, but we're actually building uh, like 2000 the aughts, basically, eight, eight years, ten years, where the e-commerce uh, economy, the web economy was built. We're now building the Web3 economy. And so you're, you're a, a significant part of that, and, and the NFT space is a significant part of that. And brands are going crazy uh, right now for um, not cryptocurrency uh, so much, uh, not DeFi uh, yet, but... Uh, uh, but associating themselves with uh, this new sense of community um, and essentially uh, finding real ways to, to drive business uh, based on the foundations that, uh, that they see here. Absolutely. I always say you don't bet against art, music, and culture. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, look, it's been a big year for Ethereum. Um, we're now a couple months removed from the merge. What happens next? Uh, I could take that in so many different directions. Um, so the merge was the last major piece of uncertainty um, in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, 
so many people, naysayers, detractors, uh, realists, um, were like, there's no way that, that you're going to be able to land that uh, incredibly complex transaction uh, transition. And, and it went very well. Um, what it did was it, it removed a lot of uncertainty. Um, it put Ethereum on the world stage. Uh, so many major global uh, publications were covering it. Um, many of the journalists knew what was going on. Many others did not, but they knew something really big was happening because all the people they respected uh, thought something really big was happening. Uh, so they knew something internet scale uh, was happening. Um, and it paved the way to infinite scalability. Uh, so um, scalability has been an issue. Uh, we built a system that was in a sense, a prototype system that enabled us to, to figure out so many different things. Um, and it is a piece uh, that is really um, driving the acceleration of, of what I call modularization uh, in our technology. So we started out with this big monolithic blockchain where everything was in the protocol. Uh, and we started teasing little pieces apart. Engineers basically like to modularize things. To, they, they can get built better, more robustly, and, and they can perform uh, much better, faster. So we're seeing the trust module uh, teased out. We're seeing the execution module teased out. The trust module uh, is Ethereum 1, and uh, essentially um, even that is modularizing into sub-modules where you're going to have block builders, block proposers, validators. Um, ex the execution layer um, is being teased out. So all these layer twos and layer threes being built above them uh, enable us to add new compute resources um, to this blockchain ecosystem. And similar to the internet, where you can add new computers to the internet and you get more transaction throughput capacity, we can now do that for blockchain and, and we'll get to hundreds of thousands and effectively infinite transactions per second uh, in that sort of environment. Another piece is uh, um, data availability. So these layer two rollups, um, they need uh, to refer to data on the blockchain or somewhere, and that data can be guaranteed. You can have uh, strong guarantees or weaker guarantees, or you can bring your own data in, in certain ways. And so that whole um, macro module is modularizing itself, and, and we'll see things like restaking of Ether and data availability layers. And so um, there's a lot of uh, talent, engineering talent, um, being brought to building essentially the next infrastructure for the planet. Absolutely. You know, some of the biggest criticisms of Ethereum were the environmental concerns and scalability. Obviously, the former has now been addressed with the merge, and, and Ethereum's on trajectory to address the, the second as well. So I'm curious, like, given Ethereum's trajectory, uh, do you believe that the future is multi-chain? And if so, what role do other chains play, and, and what factors should be weighed? Sure. Um, We've been saying the future is multi-chain for a long time, and Consensus is a uh, it's a decentralized protocols company. We started as an, an Ethereum company because um, that was um, the best, most expressive uh, technology out there for a long time, and we kept looking at at offering infrastructure for different protocols, and they just weren't getting the traction. So it didn't make sense for us to apply scarce resources when we could just 
build stuff we cared about in, in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, lots of projects have adopted pieces of the Ethereum technology. There are other projects out there that are good projects. It's, it's important to explore the solution space broadly uh, so that uh, maybe there's something brilliant out here that's way better than everything else, or maybe there's a piece uh, here that you can, you can bring back and, and make everything much better. Um, so um, yes, multi-chain world. Uh, I've been calling Ethereum uh, metropolitan Ethereum recently, um, and that's because lots of different blockchain technologies are getting built at layer two and higher and anchoring into Ethereum layer one, um, and they can get the full security guarantee of Ethereum. There are other technologies through bridges uh, that, uh, um, that have different approaches and that are, are, are doing valuable things. Um, I don't think there will be that many layer ones uh, because layer one is where you get this new form of trust from, decentralized trust, and you need a massively decentralized layer one in order to really trust it. If you're going to put valuable assets like NFTs, if you're going to put valuable protocols on a platform, you're not going to choose a platform that is uh, numerically half as secure uh, as this other platform when you can attach an, a new network to that and get the full security. Uh, so um, we will see uh, Ethereum being a, a major uh, hub uh, to so many different systems. We'll probably see um, one or a handful of others. Bitcoin will, will stick around. To, uh, I think of Bitcoin not so much as a, a programming platform, but uh, as essentially the world's most valuable NFT. Um, so similar to gold, where it's uh, the world's most, not even well, a, a very valuable uh, substance that we, we can all agree on. We can divide it up, fractionalize it, and we can all, all hold a piece of, of the gold non-fungible metal. A store um, of value. Exactly, yeah. it's a store of value. So uh, Bitcoin, because it's, uh, it's such a brilliant invention and it represents a, a moment in time, uh, is something that, that we can all hold a piece of uh, and we can, we can use it in ways similar to, to how we use gold. And, and there, there'll be some functionality, I think, built on top of it. There, there, there's a guy named... Um, uh, John, I'm forgetting his last name, uh, it'll come to me in a minute, but uh, somebody's actually looking at taking the roll-up technology and trying to, to run it on Bitcoin. It, it would need protocol changes uh, for Bitcoin, but uh, that doesn't happen uh, very often. So may, maybe Bitcoin will be more functional, but there, there will be a few of them. Sure. Tell us a bit more about consensus, um, you know, the mission there and how your strategy has shifted uh, since its inception. Sure. Um, consensus has been around since about a year into the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, and uh, we started by realizing, um, hey, there's nothing here. Um, uh, we were trying to build applications um, and there were no developer tools. There was no infrastructure. Uh, there were no test nets, uh, and so uh, we had to, to do all of that ourselves. Um, back then, you would have to, if you built a little product, uh, and I used the term product very loosely back then, so it's sort of like a, a demonstration product, um, you'd have to ask your users to go and download the Ethereum client to your laptop, um, sync the client uh, to the network. That could take 
hours, um, days in some cases, um, and then type in this URL and, and you'll hit a user interface and, and uh, then you're away. Um, and so we were building a bunch of different demonstration products in our company and, and uh, trying to create a lot of different test nets and, and uh, some industrious people um, said, hey, don't, why don't we create our own test net uh, that we can all use? Um, that evolved over a year or so into a product called Infura. Um, and so Infura set out to essentially pay all the AWS bills for the ecosystem for, for, for a few years and, and figure out how to, how to build scalable infrastructure for blockchain and make it easier for developers uh, to, to build um, without having to, to run their own blockchain DevOps or run their own inf infrastructure. Um, we did similar things with Truffle. We, we built developer tools. Uh, MetaMask was a very early project that uh, um, was conceived to just make it easy for people to do certain transactions on the blockchain. It has evolved into being um, our digital authority in the Web3 space. Everything that we do on blockchain uh, is user-centric, and, and so we can sign a transaction and, and authorize um, whatever we, we, we want to authorize. And so uh, we currently operate uh, essentially a flywheel where we have developer tools, including Infura and Truffle and some other things, um, to facilitate the development of applications. So more developers, more applications, and then we provide the major non-custodial user interface in MetaMask. So uh, these are your keys and you own everything and we can't touch any of your stuff. Um, that would be improper. Uh, somebody should tell Sam that perhaps. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, we, we run this flywheel where more applications, more users, etc. We've got just about 30 seconds left, so real quick, real quick answer. What excites you most about the future of NFTs? Um, the future of NFTs are, uh, I, again, it's, it's my expanded definition of NFTs. I, I love that uh, they are containers for art. I, I think uh, uh, Cooper's talking later. I think... Uh, the music industry is going to transition uh, to becoming NFT-based, and nobody's going to realize um, how it's transitioned. It'll it'll just you know be like MP3s and then Spotify and Apple Music, etc. But the the next stage is really going to empower uh, the creator. Um, to look forward to uh, uh, music blowing up uh, the NFT space. That that could be our next major wave for our ecosystem. Um, but more than that, uh, there will be so many businesses that are realized, encapsulated uh, by NFTs. And so we need to look to every sector of the economy that has intermediaries uh, that are extracting too much value in a transaction flow or that are um, impeding innovation by, by being a, a thousand pound gorilla uh, slowing down change. And every one of those are going to be disintermediated uh, by, by this new technology, right-sized, at least. Thank you. Everyone, give it up for Joe Lubin. Thanks, everyone. Well, that's a wrap. One of my favorite conversations from the week, Joe Lubin. Always inspiring speaking with him. 
you can just tell how much conviction he has uh, for the future of this technology and the space. Uh, his appreciation for NFTs and their role in bringing uh, crypto to the mainstream. And love how he was never afraid to share his unvarnished thoughts on what's going on in the space. Uh, after that panel was recorded, I had the opportunity to give him a private tour of the gateway with Beeple, uh, take him through all of the amazing immersive art installations we did at the DuPont building. And uh, he has some really kind words for, for NFT Now and, uh, and what we're building here. And it wouldn't be possible without each and every one of you. So I want to thank you all for listening to the NFT Now podcast live from the gateway. Uh, before I leave you, uh, you know, we love your feedback. Feedback, please do go to your podcast streaming service of choice. Give, leave us a review. Give us some stars as we gear up to relaunch season two of the NFT Now podcast. But for now, I'm signing off and we'll see you next week.